Pharisee, he was a very religious man, a uh, very well-educated man, uh, but he believed that the church of Jesus Christ was not of God, and that was God's calling on his life was to stamp out the church, to keep this thing from spreading and, and growing and accelerating in the communities around them. So as Paul is making his way towards persecuting Christians, Jesus appears to him on this road to Damascus, and uh, Paul is struck with blindness for three days, and he just has this life-changing encounter with Christ. And now God has so dramatically changed his heart and his life, he becomes he becomes a, a planter of churches. He becomes the one who goes out telling others about Jesus. And he is so fired up and he is so ramped up about the gospel of Jesus Christ that he writes an entire book about it. So the entire book of Romans really un, unfolds for us two verses. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. First, to, to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then the Gentile. And then he goes, in, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by, by faith. And so uh, Paul uh, writes this letter in describing the condition of humanity and how God answered the condition of humanity and so really, it, this first three chapters, he's, he's pulling everything back to chapter three. He's like a prosecuting attorney building his case against humanity. And there are four groups of people that he talks about. He talks about those who are rebellious, that just don't want anything to do with God, doesn't care if God exists, whether he exists or not, really doesn't care if he's involved in my life or engaged in any form or fashion. In chapter two, he's going to talk about those who are respectable, those who are nice people, good people. And then he's going to talk about the religious uh, again in the latter part of chapter 2. And he's going to talk about all of humanity. And he's bringing his case to this. Listen, out of all humanity, there is no one who's righteous. There's no one who has not sinned. All have sinned, fallen short of God's glory. And the wages, the payment of our sin is death. Not just physical death, but also spiritual death, eternal separation from God. And so Paul says in this verse that about this righteousness, what, does, what is this gospel of righteousness? The word righteousness means to be in a right standing or a right relationship with God. And Paul says the way that you get there is not by being a good person. It's not by being a religious person. It doesn't matter how rebellious you are, how nice you are, how you religious you might be. We're not going to enter into a right standing with God simply by what we do. He says it is only by faith, and faith always requires an object. The object of our faith is Jesus. Jesus is the one who can clothe us in his righteousness. Therefore, when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ credited to our account, and he sees us in faith perfected in Christ, even though we don't live perfect lives, but perfected in Christ judicially. He has canceled the debt. He's marked it paid in full. He says, now I'm, I'm, I'm letting you off the hook. No more, no more wages against you. I've put that on Jesus. Now you can stand in my presence in perfection. And that's how we enter into a relationship with our heavenly father, our creator. He says, there's no other way, but that is not, that is not the typical way people think view this. 
So no matter where you go in life, if you ask somebody, well, what do you think it takes to get to heaven? They're always going to come back to you with a works answer. Well, you know, I've been a good person. I've been a generous person. I haven't hurt anyone. I pay my taxes. I, you know, I, I, I do all these things. And therefore, I just believe that God's going to let me in. It's just, it's just going to happen. And so Paul writes this letter to, to those in Rome to help them understand humanity's condition in God's eyes. And so Paul gives us the bad news before he gives the good news. He says, here's the bad news. All are guilty. All are under the wrath of God. All are under the judgment of God, the condemnation of God. If it ended there, that's really bad news. But the good news is God has stepped into the realm of humanity in order to change our condition in the eyes of our creator. Now, People struggle with the concept of the wrath of God. You know, in verse 18, it says the wrath of God is being revealed because immediately their minds go to this, this emotional response that is irrational, uncontrollable, it's harsh, it's vindictive, it's cruel, it's selfish, and that's how people view God's wrath. And so God's wrath does not mean, when we talk about God's wrath, he's not talking about him flying into some uncontrolled rage in the Greek, that's thumos, that's, that's an uncontrolled rage, of, rage, a vindictive rage, but here it's used of, or, or that's orge, and here is thumos, which means it's a, it's a very controlled, um, not vindictive, not malicious, not spiteful, none of those things. It is a controlled anger, hurt, anger, rage against the sin of humanity. And so God, in his holiness, in his righteousness, in his justice, must, must confront sin, must judge sin, must do something with sin. When it comes to sin and evil, God is not neutral. When God exercises his wrath against evil, he is totally hostile towards evil. He refuses to condone it. He refuses to overlook it. He refuses to just sweep it under the carpet. He refuses to do any of that because of his holiness, righteous justice. He has to deal with humanity's sin. And so this is what Paul is unfolding in these first three chapters of, of the book of Romans. And so God's wrath is, is an act of opposition to evil in general, but opposition and punishment towards the godless and the wicked and their behavior who have suppressed the truth and have denied God in particular. And so God's judging someone not only seems politically incorrect in our day and time, but it seems absolutely intolerant. But if we don't understand the bad news, we never understand the good news. We never understand the reason why we need a Savior. People never come to the realization as like there's something wrong with me that I, I did not know, did not realize, and therefore I need help in this area until we help them understand, listen, this is the human condition. Here's God's solution to the human condition, and his name is, is Jesus. And so sin has overtaken the rebellious, their lives, and become enslaving and self-destructive. So Paul, as he talks about in, in Romans chapter 1, in verses 18 through 32, he says, man, let man left to his unbridled passions. The end game here is that man, he, he, if God didn't restrain evil, he would destroy himself. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the restrainer of evil, of mankind's unbridled passions. And if there were no restrainer, which by the way will be released, pulled back, 
prior to the tribulation, which is why Jesus said, if God did not set the tribulation as a specific time frame, no one would live through it. Because the evil of humanity will be unleashed as it, is, as, as it has never seen before. But Paul says, listen, as man becomes more unbridled in his passions and in the sinfulness of his ways. I mean, think about this, this is why in our day and time, is, is man evolving upward? No, man is evolving downward, devolving downward. That's why we have sexual abuse is up. Human trafficking is up. Child porn and the exploitation of children is skyrocketing. 58% increase in murders in major cities last year alone. Divorce rate is up. Transgender dysphoria and breakdown of the family. And single parents are, you know, family are on the rise and all the ramification that brings with it. And so this is, this is what happens when man just kind of gives himself over to himself. And God says, Paul says in, in here that God's wrath is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness. Now, God's wrath comes in two forms. There is his passive wrath, and there is his active wrath. In Romans chapter 1, we have God's passive wrath. And so three times, what, what did God say about those who just would not acknowledge him as creator, would not acknowledge him as Lord over their life, They're, they don't want any, really anything to do with God, just like leave me alone. He's, Paul says they're suppressing the truth about God because they just want to do life their own way. And so three times Paul said, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. And that is the um, passive wrath of God. He says, if, if, if that's the way you want to live, if that's what you want to do, if that's your thing, go for it. You can do that, but I'm going to tell you what the end game is. The end game is self-destruction. The end game is it's not going to turn out very well for you because you're setting your feet on a path and every path has a destination. And this destination of the pathway that you are on, it does not end in a positive manner. And so Jesus did the same thing with Judas Iscariot. When Judas was about to betray Christ, what did Jesus say to him? I, I know what it is you want to do, so go ahead and do it. He was giving Judas permission. He said, okay, this is what you want. If, if this is your end game, then go ahead and do it. And so Judas betrays Christ for 30 pieces of silver. But what ultimately happened to Judas? Self-destruction. He hung himself over the actions that he took against Jesus. And so Paul is warning us, this is the plight of humanity. And God's passive wrath is where God says, I, I'm not going to get in your way. You can do what you want, but ultimately it leads to self-destruction. So when we come to Romans chapter 2, now Paul is going to make a shift from God's passive wrath to his active wrath. Now his active wrath does not mean that when you do something wrong, lightning bolts are coming from heaven, and, and you know God's just like sending plagues into your life. That's not it at all. What Paul's going to say is, listen, when it comes to those who are respectable, moral people, when it comes to the religious, there is coming the day where everyone will stand before God, and will be, God will be in judgment over our lives. Whether you're rebellious, respectable, or religious, if you have not embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you have not been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, if you're not in the right standing with God because of your relationship with Jesus Christ, this is the ultimate end game. You will be judged by God and you will have to suffer his wrath. And then Paul's going to say, let me give you the criteria by which God is going to judge. Let me 
show you how God is going to approach this. And so when it comes to a respectable, a moral person, um, this is the person who says, well, you know what? I might not be perfect, but I haven't done dot, 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 dot. And so they, they begin to um, rattle off their self-righteous resume. So this is where judgment comes in. Because here's what a self-righteous person will do. We have no problem judging somebody else about their sins, but we really don't want anybody judging our sins, right? So this is the person who can rail publicly against those who are homosexual, but they won't say a word about their porn problem, or they won't say a word about other issues that they're dealing with privately. This is the person who can say, well, at least I've never murdered anybody, but yet they're harboring bitterness and anger and hatred and unforgiveness in their heart, which, to which Jesus says, if you're doing that, you've already killed them. This is what self-righteousness is all about. I become the standard of righteousness, and I measure everything by, from, about, from myself, right? So, uh, you know, I haven't done this, and I haven't done that, but I haven't done this, that, and the other, and therefore, I don't think I deserve God's judgment. I don't think I deserve what God has in store for me. Therefore, I do not think that it is, that it is fair. And so, uh, Paul says, well, let me, let me kind of spell this out for you. And so, he gives four criteria by which God will judge the rebellious, the respectable, the religious, anyone in the human race who does not have a personal one-on-one relationship with Jesus Christ to the degree that you have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It takes that clothing to enter into heaven. You have to be robed in the righteousness of Christ, and that only comes through faith in him. That is the essence of the gospel. So here's the first criteria, is that God will judge based on knowledge. Based on knowledge. Look in verse 1 of chapter 2. You, therefore... Now, every time, anytime somebody uses the word therefore, he's pointing back to what he's already talked about. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you pass judgment, you do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Well, where do we find truth? We find truth in God's word. We find truth in God himself. Jesus is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Christ said of himself, because Jesus is the agent of God's judgment, and so it is truth. It's based on God's knowledge. How big is God's knowledge? The Bible says his knowledge is omniscient. It's all-knowing. That means God knows everything that you've ever said, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, every motive that you have had in your life. God knows it all perfectly. And he says in verse three, so when you are a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's, God's judgment? Now, Paul had been in the therefore talking about the rebellious people who look at God's creation They can see that there has to be a designer behind the design, but they refuse to acknowledge him. They suppress that truth. And so mankind takes up idolatry. We replace God with something else. It becomes the the meaning and purpose and focus and uh, the driving force of my life. And so it doesn't take a rocket scientist when he listed off all the sins in in the latter part of, of chapter one. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that we live in a really messed up world. Would you agree with that? 
Can we get consensus on that? Messed up world with a lot of messed up people. But the respectable moralist would say, I'm a good person. The world's problems are not my fault. If everyone was like me, the world would be a much better place, right? This is, this is the thought process. Now, Paul blows this out of the water because in essence, what he says in these first three verses is this, uh, hey, cupcake, you're part of the problem. You're not the solution. You're part of the problem. You're not the solution. Jesus is the solution. Humanity, all of humanity is the problem. All right, so the moralist looks around and takes comfort in the fact that, you know, they just don't do certain things that other people do. And, and when we look at the world and all the problems and we need to say, man, I'm just like, I'm part of the problem. I mean, but we, we tend to judge the world and excuse ourselves, right? Like I thought to myself, I was thinking this week, well, I wonder what it's like to be married to me. <laughs> don't ask my wife because she'll be honest, man. After I thought about that for a while, I had PTSD and eye twitch and thought, man. So the, the, the fact that we, we, tend to, um, we tend to see the problems everyone else has, but we're totally blind to our own problems, our own faults, our own failures, and our own flaws. Aren't we that way? Or we make excuses. Well, you know, uh, I wouldn't have done that, but, you know, it's just my personality type. I mean, after all, at work, I took a personality test, and I'm J-E-R-K. That's what it came out as. And, uh, you know, it's just the way I was raised. I, I had a bad day. I, over, you know, I overslept. I was late to work, and I, I wasn't eating properly. I wasn't getting enough sleep. And so we have these massive excuses about our own faults, flaws, and failures and then we use ourselves as this measuring wrong between what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. And if you think you don't, let me ask you a question when you're out there driving on the highway and like you, you're, you're like buzzing down the highway and people are just like driving really slow. And not only are they driving slow in the right lane, they're driving slow in the passing lane. And you're thinking to yourself, that idiot, those jerks, get out of the way, you're blocking traffic, yeah, yeah. And then when you get around them, you're out there flowing, and then all of a sudden somebody goes right by you. You think, man, they, these people are a menace to society here. They're going to kill somebody. What's the standard of measurement? How fast I'm driving. When I'm driving too slow, I'm not a jerk or idiot. If I'm driving too fast, I'm not a menace to society. We become the, we become the standard. We use ourselves, and when... People are asked whether they're going to heaven or hell. Again, this is the standard. Well, I'm not perfect, but I've never killed anyone, and so I guess I'm a pretty good person. Do you know that even in prison, murderers, rapists, and thieves have no tolerance for child molesters to the point that they will hurt them if they can and kill them if possible? Why? Because even they, like, we, we might not be great, but we got a standard, and we're it. And so the therefore takes us back. And what Paul says, he questions the moral person. I mean, look at the list that he gave up here. Um, let's just pick up in verse 29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, 
evil, greed, depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossipers, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. And so what God was saying, would be, Paul would be saying, like, listen, if you think you're the standard of measurement, let me ask you a question. Have you ever done these things? Have you ever gossiped about somebody? Have you ever slandered somebody? That is, you talk bad about them because you don't like them and you want everybody else not to like them. Have you ever done these things? As he's just listing things off, 21 different sins he listed off. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. And he says, listen, how can you judge somebody else for what they're doing when you find you're doing the same stuff? You just call it something different. And Paul says, man, this, this just isn't right. You find them too offensive, but you're blind to your own offenses. Now, judging someone doesn't mean you can't tell them hard truth, okay? Judging somebody means I will judge your sin, and then I won't want anything to do with you. Like, you're too offensive for me, man. Your standard's way too low. See, Jesus spoke truth to the Pharisees, didn't he? Called them brood of vipers, whitewashed tombstones. He wasn't being offensive. He was just giving them the truth. Jesus loved them. He wanted them to embrace him as Messiah, but they just wouldn't do it. But how did the Pharisees treat those who they considered offensive offenders of God's law? Don't have anything to do with them. That's what judgment, being judgmental is about. I don't want anything to do with you. And so they criticized Jesus for what? For hanging around sinners. Those people they considered unworthy of God's love, unworthy of God's grace, unworthy of God's forgiveness. And that's why in Luke chapter 15, Jesus launched into the three parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. And he was saying, in essence, to the Pharisees, listen, you've never locked eyes on anyone who is not important to God. I don't care what they've done. They need the gospel. So however morally righteous you think you are, and you might use yourself as a standard and say, well, there might be some people better than me, but at least I'm not like these people down here, and therefore, you know, I'm, I'm just, I don't want anything to do with these people down here. I may, I, I, I may reach up here, but I'm not going to reach down here. And this is what Paul is driving at in, in verse 2. And he, he, says, um, he says, man, this, this, now that we know that God's judgment against those who do such things, it's based on truth. God is... If, if God's not just, if God doesn't punish wrong, that would be like a judge who says to someone who's brought into his courtroom who has committed a heinous act, and he just says, yeah, no big deal, let you off. Well, how do you think the people feel whose family member was the recipient of their crime? That's not fair, that's not just. That judge, he's not a good judge. He, he should never, right? See, this is the way humanity is. We have this sense of justice within us because we are created in the image of God. And this is why we have no right to judge people because of their sin. Why judge them? They need Jesus. This is what we need to take to them. And rather than just like what, what Christianity sometimes does is we judge somebody and we offend them and we push them away and then wonder why they don't want Jesus, because they've been around Christians. And so Paul says, this, this can't be. 
We all want justice, right? If somebody creamed into your car out in our parking lot and, and, and didn't leave you a note, you'd be screaming and crying and like, oh, this is not fair. I, I want justice. They need to pay for this. They need to you know, make sure the damages have been repaired. Why do we have that? Because we have that sense of justice. And so to feel free to pour out our wrath upon others and then have this belief that God has no right to pour it out on us, For our injustices, total hypocrisy. Total hypocrisy. And so Paul is writing to to an imaginary interrogator and and, and debater, and he's thinking up questions. And in in verse um, 3, that's why he says, "So, So when you, a mere man, pass judgment and yet do the same things, do you think, like, are you really thinking this through? Do you think that you're really going to escape God's judgment? Do you think God's going to overlook your gossip, your slander, your sins? You think he's not going to judge that? You're out here judging everybody else for doing the same things to you, but you in turn are doing the same things they're doing. It may not be to them, but it might be to somebody else. Do you think that God isn't going to ultimately judge that? He says you're dead wrong. He, he is. All of humanity is, is guilty. Now remember, he's talking about somebody outside the gospel, right? He's talking about those who are unbelievers who are lost, but who believe they're saved because they are respectable, they're, they're moral, they're good, and they define their goodness by their own standard. But that measuring rod is short. The standard, the measuring rod, is always God himself, who is holy and righteous and perfection. And so God will judge according to his knowledge, according to his truth. The second thing, way that God judges is based upon our hearts, upon the heart. In verse 4, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And so God knows the heart. He sees the heart. And notice this term shows contempt. That means to take for granted. Um, there are many people, both believers and unbelievers, who, um, when it comes to sin and God judging sin, tend to think, well, you know, it's just really not that big of a deal. And, and we just, you know, especially if you've been a believer in Christ and you've walked with Jesus for a long time and you know that your sin debt's been canceled and Mark paid in full and we commit sin, and eh, if we feel like it, we might confess that to God. Eh, we might own up to it, but yeah, really, really not that big of a deal. It's just, you know, one of those things, and God doesn't see it that way. We see it this way, and certainly an unbeliever has, has no, no care in the world about what they're saying. Now, they might feel guilty for something because they have a conscience, but over time, that conscience gets hardened, it gets seared. Um, it gets deadened, and then their conscience doesn't even bother them anymore. And they can, you know, they can. Now this is why somebody can like walk into a department store and and go to the customer service area, and just this per, poor person who's behind the counter, that person just unload on them, like just spew all over them, and think nothing about it. But yet. When they leave that place of establishment and go to their workplace, and if somebody came off the streets and did that to them, they would be screaming bloody murder. 
how dare you? You can't judge me. You don't know me. You don't. This is what Paul's talking about. And so he says that this is, this is contempt. He says, I, I, I didn't agree that we, that we should be judged by God for what we do, is, is what most people think. And, but there's a God is, who's God of justice, and he demands that justice be judged. But it, listen, watch it. It doesn't mean that God demands his justice immediately. Right now, God operates under his passive judgment, One day his active judgment will come to bear, and this is where Paul is taking us to. Now, in the meantime, what is God doing? Why does does God not send lightning bolts upon those who sin? Why does God just passively say, okay, if that's what you want to do, if that's the way you want to live, go for it. I'm giving you over to that. Because his desire is that you would experience three things, he says. That you would experience the kindness of God, the tolerance of God, and the patience of God. And the goal of that is to bring you to repentance. He says it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, not the wrath of God. Not holding judgment over my head. When I was an unbeliever, you know, people talking to me about, oh, you know, you're going to go to hell. Well, so what? My friends will be there. We're going to party, right? So this is people's uh, concept of hell. It's just going to be one big party down there, and we're just all going to be kumbaya, and just, we're just in a different place, right? So I really don't care. Didn't really. You, you can threaten me with hell all you want. I didn't care. That's not what drew me to Christ. What drew me to Christ is because about three young couples in their 20s took it upon themselves to love me with the love of Christ, no matter what I did, what I said, or how I acted, they never gave up on me. And it was the love of Jesus through their lives, the kindness of Christ, that brought me to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is what what Paul has in mind. He says, how does God do that? He says, this is kindness. The the number one attribute of God in the Bible is his kindness in the Old Testament, it's called his loving kindness. It's the, the Hebrew word hesed, the loving kindness of God, that God is loving and he's kind and he's compassionate and he's generous. Listen, God is so loving and kind that he will let humanity live in the realm of his what's called common grace. That means, if let's say I, I don't want anything to do with God. I've thumbed my nose at God. I've given God the finger. I don't really care. God, listen, I can live my life here on planet Earth, and I can still get up every morning and drink my coffee. I can eat my food. I can live in my house. I can drive my cars. I can go to my job. I can have children, grandchildren, retire, go on vacations, live a wonderful life, and God hasn't struck me dead because of my sin. Why? Because of his kindness. He lets us live in in his common grace. His hope is that one day you'll come to your senses and, and the love of God, the kindness of God will be the thing that draws you to Jesus. And then he talks about tolerance. The, the word tolerant here means to, um, to call a truce, to cease the hostility. In Genesis chapter 9, when we, there, humanity, all humanity, was, everything we were doing was just like evil. And God flooded the earth, and then he 
After the flood, he set a rainbow in the sky. Get that bow? And so God took the arrows out of the bow. He called a truce. He says, the hostility is now taken away. And listen, this truce is not is not um, brought about by humanity. It is God who is called the truth, truth upon humanity, not humanity upon God. God still you know, is, has to um, be the recipient of people's anger and hatred and bitterness towards him. But he says, listen, I've taken the arrows out of the bow. I've called a truce. I am tolerant. Doesn't mean that uh, I, 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 I'm you're just winking away at your sin and acting like it doesn't matter. It does matter. But here's what First Peter or 2 Peter 3, 9 says. It's not God's desire that any would perish, but all come into repentance. And therefore, God says, until my my final judgment. I am calling a truce upon humanity. I will activate my passive wrath, but I will not activate my active wrath until, until the future. I'm giving humanity a, a chance to respond to the gospel. And number three is patience. He has the power to avenge, but he doesn't. He doesn't judge immediately. He doesn't treat us, as Psalm 103 says, as our sins deserve. I mean, is, has God been patient with you? How many have cursed God, wanted nothing to do with him, accused him, been indifferent towards him? But he still has an incredible love for that person. And in his kindness and his tolerance, he's called a truce. And in his patience, his heart's desire is that you would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of what you have done, how severe the sin might be, how deep it might be, how heinous it might be, and that he might clothe you in the righteousness of Christ so that you will never have to taste of the wrath of God or his judgment, active judgment upon your sin because that was placed on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you are in Christ and he is in you by faith and trust in him alone, he has clothed you in his righteousness and he... Watch this. He has taken away the wrath, the judgment. He's expunged your record forever. And so he says, um, but what if we don't respond to this? What if we live under the kindness and tolerance and patience of God and we don't respond? This word contempt means to despise him. And as a result, here's what happens, is that when a, when a person who has been living under the kindness and the tolerance and the patience and the common grace of God, and they just keep putting off the gospel and putting off the gospel and, and just keep you know, keeping pushing God away, he says, eventually your heart becomes hardened. Your conscience gets seared. You, you become unresponsive and insensitive to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is a very, very dangerous place to be. Do you know people whose hearts are so hard? You share the gospel with them, it's like talking to a phone pool. They don't care. Now, Jesus gave a parable about the four soils, and one was the hard soil, right? What happened to the seed that fell in the hard soil? The birds came and ate it up. Satan comes along snatches away the truth. just bounces off of them. 
And so there comes a point where even the Holy Spirit can't get through to them anymore. I'm going to just say something real quick. Um, we'll wrap this up. Uh, it, God says in these verses, he says, look, what, what are you doing? He says, man, judgment is being stored up against you when you refuse the gospel. Here's the third way God judges based on our deeds. Now, let me say this about verses 6 through 10 because I'm going to hit these really quick. These verses are not talking about salvation, how you're saved. These verses are talking about God's judgment. It's important because people read these verses say, the Bible says that I can be saved by my good deeds. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about God's judgment against sin, not about how to be saved. The Bible is very clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith, right? This is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone boast. There will not be one single person in heaven who's going to walk up and say, well, let me tell you why I'm here. Let me tell you about what I did. Let me tell you about what I accomplished. No one, not a, not a single person. You are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, he's the only one who can clothe you properly that enables you to enter into God's presence. Period. This is the bedrock of the gospel. We're not saved by works. And so Paul goes on to say, as we kind of run through this, he says, God will give to each person according to what he has done to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, immortality, uh, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth, he's, he's contrasting two different people here, uh, reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, but the glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first to the Jew and then for the Gentile. And so, uh, what, what is Paul talking about here? Well, God is going to judge the person, obviously, who does not receive the gift of, of salvation. And so, he's contrasting two groups of people. And then he says that, okay, um, that's true. And, but the basis of God's judgment against those who have never received Christ into their life is going to be the basis of what they do, their deeds, what they have done. Now, in case you're wondering whether or not that is true, you can go to, we don't turn there, we don't have time, to Revelation chapter 20. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. At the Great White Throne Judgment, at the end of the tribulation, at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, God will destroy the present heavens and earth by fire. Those who are outside of Christ, never been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, will stand at this judgment seat. And the Bible says that the books, plural, will be opened. Now, there, there are different books. There is those who give their life to Christ. The Bible says that your name is written in the book of life. Later on, that book is given to Jesus. It becomes the Lamb's book of life. If your name is not found in that book, the other books that are open are the books that where God has recorded every single thing you have said, done, been a part of, imagined, um, motivated by Jesus himself said that God will judge on every idle word that we speak. And so what God is doing is to show his judge justice, his rightness in the fact that you will enter into the presence of this place called hell. 
Not because God wanted you there. It's because you rejected God's means by which you could have your sins forgiven, this relationship with Christ. In other words, these books being opened means that no one will be in hell by accident. When Jesus gave the parable, the rich man of Lazarus, it was very evident the rich man who found himself in hell, not one time did he complain about, this is unfair, I shouldn't be here, this is unjust, I've done a lot of good stuff, this is, this is not right, the judge is, this judge, man, he is, uh, he is, he's not impartial, I mean, this is wrong, none of that. People are there because of what they have, they have done, their sins have not been forgiven, their their, their sins have not been canceled or um, marked paid in full or washed by the blood of Jesus. And so God, the righteous judge, will judge them on what they, they have done. And so Paul in verse 7 contrasts between those who receive Christ and those who don't. So the question is, then how would you know? How do you know if you're saved? This is a big issue for a lot of believers. Some people struggle with this all their lives. I don't really know if I'm, a, I'm, I'm saved. I think I am, but then I do some really stupid stuff. Then I wonder, am I really saved? Well, because, watch this, your enemy comes along and says, you know what? If you were really a child of God, you wouldn't have done that stupid thing. You would not be engaged in that sinful act. And so he begins hounding you, and watch this, he always brings condemnation. Remember this, Satan always condemns. You're a horrible person. You're a terrible individual. God couldn't love you. You've done this and you've done that. Listen, the Holy Spirit convicts. When the Holy Spirit convicts, he is very detailed. Greg, you just lied. Greg, your motives are impure. Greg, you're harboring bitterness. That's not what, listen, the reason the Holy Spirit convicts because he wants me to acknowledge my sin, repent of my sin, turn from my sin, and, and allow the Holy Spirit to bring healing and hope back into my life so that I begin living as Christ would have lived. But Satan condemns because he just wants you to feel really bad about yourself because you can't do anything about it. Now you just screw, you just walk around feel like a horrible person, and then he throws in the caveat, oh, you're not saved if you were saved. How do we know? Well, there are a lot of indicators, but Paul gives us three of them right here in these verses. He says, look at the top of um, verse 7. It says, talks about glory, honor, and immortality. First of all, life is about the glory of God, right? So if I'm saved, I'm not, I'm not seeking my personal glory. I'm, I'm seeking to live for God's glory, right? Paul said, no matter what you do, we eat, drink, whatever you do, do it for what? The glory of God. So my heart's desire has changed. I'm not living for self anymore. I'm not living for self-glory. I'm living for God's glory and for God's honor. And what, what can I do to bring God glory and honor? How can I elevate God? How can I worship him? How can I raise him up so that others see him through me? How can I show my appreciation and my devotion and my thankfulness and my gratitude to God? Those are the things on the forefront of my mind. But when I was a lost man, ain't none of that mattered to me. He says, how, how can I live a life that honors God and reverences him to show God how much he's done for me? And then he mentions this immortality. How can I, as Paul says in Colossians, how can I set my mind on things above where Christ is seated in heavenly places? In other words, the thought that a Christian can be so heavenly minded that there are no earthly good is impossible. 
right? Bible teaches us that set our affections, our desires, our focus, our, I mean, not on what is seen, but what is on unseen, because what is seen is temporal, what is unseen is eternal. So when I get up and I start my day and I'm thinking about my week or the month or the year, I'm thinking, God, how can you use my life to help somebody come to the Lord Jesus so that they can have their life as radically changed as you have changed my life? Because listen, everything in this world is temporal. They don't see it that way, God. But how, how can I be used of you to help them see it otherwise? This is, this is the heartbeat of a, of a believer. Now, I will say this. Um, be careful about coming to a place where you are constantly consumed by your career during the week and entertainment on the weekends. Only to wake up one day and realize that you have no desire for the things of God. Too many believers have become connoisseurs of restaurants and sports and movies and hobbies and a thousand other different things. But Heaven, hell, and the reality of humanity's condition before a holy God has been put on the back burner at best. That is not, that is not the church of the New Testament. I'm not saying don't enjoy yourself. We all do vacations, restaurants, all those things. But where's the gospel? Where, where's the heartbeat and the passion for those who do not embrace Jesus Christ? How can God use? That's the heartbeat of a, of a believer. And so in verse 8, Paul goes back to the lost, and he starts explaining the judgment. In verse 9, he says, listen, every human being who does evil uh, sins, and the the word trouble and distress there means to take, um, it's like wheat, and you're, you're beating the wheat against a rock, a hard place, to separate the wheat from the chaff, and you couple that with the word distress that he uses, which means a narrow place. What, what is a narrow place of hard punishment that you know about? Well, it would be a prison, right? And the harshest of that would be a solitary confinement. What Paul is describing here is what hell is going to be like. It's going to be a very narrow place, a very, it's like solitary confinement. It's about it's about a crushing. It's about a pressing. It's about hell. In other words, it ain't going to be a grand party. Okay? I did a funeral um, several years ago for a guy who was a part of a pretty nasty um, motorcycle gang. His parents were a member of my church, and uh, he was killed. I was about like 35 years old. Did the funeral, and there were like 300 bikers there. I mean... So the, the night, uh, bef- the evening before, um, they had the viewing. It was really interesting because these guys would come by and they would throw in their beer cans into his casket. And some of them would stick a you know, whiskey bottle in there. And they, and they always said the same thing. See, hey, brother, we'll see you on the other side. We'll be partying hardy. You know, get the party started. We'll be there to meet you and yada, yada, yada. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, that ain't it. So then I'm thinking, okay, I, I got to speak the next day and all these people are going to be there. They need Jesus, right? Will they listen? Will they care? So I can do one of two things. I can give this little like mamby-pamby vanilla kind of message, or I can give them the truth. And I gave them the truth. You could have heard a pin drop during that entire service. And at the end of the service, that man's wife and two of her friends gave their life to Christ. So you don't ever back down from the gospel 
Because who knows how many of those other men and women may have later on given their life to Christ because of the message they received on that day. Listen, you put it out there, God will take care of the rest. And here's the last one. God will judge us impartially. In verses 11 through 16, he talks about two groups of people. The first group are those who knew the law, uh, but they, you know, they were following the Bible. And, um, but God says, you knew the law, but the problem is keeping the law is not what's going to save you. And then he talks about the second group in verse 12, and he says there's three criteria here um, by which you're going to be judged. Now, these are the, the second group are those who did not have the law, right? Who had the law? The Jewish people, right? He's going to deal with them later in this chapter. They had the law. They thought because they had the law, kept the law, guess what? And we are of the father Abraham. We're good. We're in. And Paul says, no, no, you're not good and you're not in, all right? Your religion uh, keeping the law, following the law is not what saves you. Jesus is who saves you. Not by your good works, not by your moral standards. Jesus is who saves you. You need the gospel as badly as anybody else. And then he moves to the group who did not have the law. These would be the Greeks and, and uh, you know, everybody's not a Jew or uh, Gentiles and anybody not a Jew or a Gentile. And so they didn't have access to the law, but God says, I'm, I'm, go- I'm judging them on the basis of three criteria. The one we've already talked about is creation. Creation screams there's a designer and somebody who, who um, you, people say all the time, well, what about those who never heard the gospel? This is, he deals with this. This is what he's talking about here. Those who never heard the gospel. Well, creation screams there's a designer and that they, they make a move towards God. They want to know God. God says he takes it upon himself to bring more light, uh, more ability, more opportunity for them to see God, sense God, experience God, and have that relationship. And then he says their conduct, verse 14, is the second criteria. Uh, I mean, look, even, even um, lost people do good things. My mother was lost as lost can be. But I'm going to tell you what, she was the most self-sacrificing person I ever met in my life. Because she had five kids and single parents, she slept on a couch for 20-some years so her kids would have a bedroom. But she was lost and without Jesus. How do you convince somebody of that? You can't. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But I prayed for her and prayed for her and prayed for her. My kids would say every time they got in the car with her, Grandma, you going to heaven? So her response always saying, Oh, no, honey, don't worry about it. We're good. I'm good. It's okay. I'm good. And she wasn't good. And so eventually, um, You know, I, I, I was getting to the point, my mom's not, you know, she's in her mid-60s, and I'm thinking, she ain't, this is not going to end well. She's already had a massive heart attack, triple bypass, quadruple bypass, valve replacement. She made it through the surgery, and I'm thinking, Mom, how, how much more can God say to you? And my wife's mother wrote my mother a note, a letter, describing um, how much she loved her and cared about her and said, you know, your son really wants to see you in heaven with him. And so it was after my mother received that note, it was like two weeks after that, she came down this aisle on Mother's Day and gave her life to Jesus. So, 
I say that to say this, do not ever give up. And then the last one is your conscience. We, our conscience, and now your conscience, again, is, is not reliable unless it's under the power of the Holy Spirit. But everybody has a conscience. We, we, we have thoughts of, can be bad conscience, you know, envy, jealousy, bitter, anger, bitterness, or good, good things in your conscience. But he says, these are the criteria by which God is impartial. We have the creation, we have your, our conduct, we have um, our conscience, and God says, Jesus will be my agent of, of, um, of judgment ultimately. So I close with this, and this is on your outline. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes available to all, circle that word all, the, God, the grace of God, thus enabling you to bypass the judgment of God upon your sin. So Caleb's going to come up and um, I just say to you today, I don't know your spiritual condition. I only know what you tell me and only what I can observe. But I just want to say to you, if you're here this morning and you're trusting in anything else other than Jesus for your salvation, you're not trusting in the right thing. It's faith alone and Christ alone. Only Jesus can clothe you in his righteousness put you in a perfect standing with God, have your, your sin debt expunged, thus bypassing the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Jesus suffered that for you because the cross is where God's love and his wrath collided. His love sent Christ into the world. His wrath was poured out upon Jesus so that you and I might have a relationship with our creator. I don't know about you, but I don't know of any greater news you could give anyone, anywhere, other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is Paul's whole point. The world needs Jesus. And we just can't afford to keep our mouth shut, no matter what. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and love you. We praise you for all that you've done for us, what you're doing in us and through us. God, the future that you have secured for us, it's just all good. And so, Father, we thank you and just make this day a, a day of thanksgiving for your common grace, for the grace that we've experienced through your son, Jesus Christ. God, may you continue to burden our hearts for the lost that we would be found faithful in doing whatever we need to do in order to get the gospel to them. That we would love on them and show them Jesus by the things that we do, the way that we respond, not in judgmentalism, but in a heart, your heart, a heart of kindness and tolerance and patience and God... We know that the lost, they're not the enemy. We have an enemy. They're not it. Even though they may push back, even though they may uh, not want to hear it, they may persecute us, it doesn't matter, Father. We just want to be found faithful in giving them the gospel of Jesus because we know that they need it. We all need it every day of our lives. So we thank you for this beautiful book, the book of Romans, that awakens our hearts and our conscience. In Jesus' name.